When it became clear that we were dealing with an unprecedented situation, I guess the big thing then is like, holy shit, is it something that we're not going to be able to ride out? Do we need to evacuate? What does evacuation look like? I need to decide right away what our strategy is going to be, I guess. From a living point of view, forget the industry, forget work. We've got a young family on the other side of the world, separate from our whole network. What's our strategy? This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. As devastating as the COVID-19 pandemic has been, Australia to date has fared better than many countries. Like Spain, Italy and the UK, the pandemic has had a catastrophic impact on those living in the United States. The Trump administration's handling of the crisis has been questioned by many, both in the US and abroad. But what is it like to experience it? Australian chef Monty Kaludrovic is best known for his time at Bacass and steering the ship at one of Australia's most iconic venues, Iceberg's Dining Room overlooking Bondi Beach. Now in Los Angeles, he was in the process of opening a new restaurant when the global pandemic changed everything. Monty, how are you? Very good, mate. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. And thanks for joining us. I know it's late over there. Can you just start by telling us um, what it was like being in LA when everything started to unfold and change? Well, um, I guess to paint the picture, we're, we're still five months out from the main project that I was brought over here for with Jackie. Um, but in, in the meantime, opening a cafe. And the way that it works over here is you, you basically team up with your building team and you get sign-off on different stages. And then those, those sign-offs are done by the city, your county, and you need one to get the other. And the big one for the kitchen team is getting the health sign-off, which basically means you can get food in the building. And we were due to get it the Thursday where it felt like the wave was coming, I guess you'd say. Um, and instead of turning up, we just had radio silence and it was basically, this isn't looking good, what's going to happen? And then by that Sunday, the hammer dropped and it was shut up shop across the board. Um, and, you know, the funny thing, up until moving here, I've only ever known L.A., through the prism of jet lag. <laughs> I've never actually spent enough time in one block to get through that jet lag and feel normal, if you know what I mean. Like you're always battling sleep and catching up with people and doing all this stuff. And so that we sort of achieved that as soon as we got here. It took about a week. Jackie got bronchitis and was at the doctor's after four days and we moved out of our hotel and back into our hotel and um, there was sort of challenges everywhere with a six and a seven-year-old tagging along for the ride as well. Um, and so we, but we've never really had that rhythm that you get into in a restaurant. We're here to open something. So it's sort of that, that pre-stage. And then when when it became clear that we were dealing with an unprecedented situation. I guess the big thing then is like, 
holy shit, how alarmed slash alert do I need to be for this? Is it something that we're not going to be able to ride out? Do we need to evacuate? What does evacuation look like? All those type of things in that first few days, you, you sort of you, you have that feeling like I need to decide right away what our strategy is going to be, I guess, from a living point of view. Forget the industry, forget work. We've, um, we've got a young family on the other side of the world separate from our whole network. What's our strategy? Um, and so that was sort of the first few days, I guess, sort of dealing with that process and that responsibility and, and trying to get my head around the situation and try and find resources that I could trust that could give me information um, to make the right decision. So that sort of consumed it, you know, and now it feels like uh, I was thinking about it in the lead up to the call and it sort of, you imagine if you go to Yamcha and you're a bit late and they're already starting to bring the cold trolley around that has a tray and there's like a white bait and a squid and a cold dumpling on it. It's like that, but your whole family's well-being is on, on the line. <laughs> well, I was going to say, Luke, is it, was there a, actually a moment that you thought, look, we just need to jump on the plane and go home um, and just forget about this project? Like, were you ever in a position that that was actually a on the table and could, could you leave the project? Oh, I think in the, in the, in the, in sort of in the wake of what, what this is, no one would have judged us poorly for packing up, I don't think. And, you know, I left the warm embrace of one family in Australia and I've quickly entered into a new family here and the guys have been an incredible support. Um, both being Australian but also being long-term LA residents, they were sort of they were reassuring. But at the same time, they would have probably been going through the same type of questions within their families. I, I think if we'd left, it would have been the idea of leaving and coming back. It's just not knowing when that is and what that looks like and where we'd live. And it was definitely my. I would have had to feel that we're facing some sort of direct threat, like if there was going to be some sort of loss of, you know, if there was going to be chaos of the system, then that would have been what made us leave. Not not being uncomfortable or being homesick, but I guess being in a strange land, you you do go to that dark place, like how bad could it be, what would happen, you know. But it would have had to have, I would have had to have felt that something like that was coming for us to jump ship. It was too, it was too hard getting here to just jump ship without there being a more direct threat than the virus. Well, yeah, you've got a young family and you've uprooted and taken them to a different country and for a different experience and I guess it's not the experience you intended it to be um how how has that sort of last six weeks been um after that sort of initial shock and decision to stay well I don't want to sort of suck all the tension out of the conversation but it's actually been fine like we I've um 
you know, if all the restaurants operational, but no one else was using the roads, I'd say it was better than normal. Um, where we are is like we've got a nice little pocket in Studio City and going for walks is good and the weather's great. Um, there was there was initially some bit of that panic around the supermarkets and farmers markets and stuff. So there was, you know, the, the first two weeks were very different to the last four weeks, I guess. The last four weeks were been on that slow descent to boredom town um and now we're right in the swamp of like just get me the fuck out of here this boring situation that we're in the kids you know i can't blame the kids for not wanting to go to zoom school every day but you sort of got to keep the spirits up uh, and now, you know, I guess we're in that same place that i see lots of our friends back home in where it's just like well, i've had enough of of this distorted life. Is it because also you're used to that high energy and, you know, in hospitality you work incredible hours um, and day after day and it's the high energy and high expectation. Is it, is, is that, with that taken away, is that, has that also affected things? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I, I had obviously been anticipating a period pre-opening where, that energy is replaced more by wanting to make sure that you're ready on a much bigger scale. Like we're talking about a pretty big, pretty big project um, with lots of I's that need dots and T's that need crossing, and there's probably going to be 300 staff. And you know, it's a different sort of rush in that lead up to opening a business than it is actually being in the guts of one and heading into summer. So I guess we were sort we we were prepared to not have that happening and after such a it was a massive ordeal getting here. Like we didn't ship anything over, we just we packed nine twenty two kilo suitcases, two skateboards, four backpacks, two helmets and a handbag. Um and you know, from LAX then you've got to get a shuttle bus to your car hire place. And then you never know, like no car ever says that it actually fits nine full suitcases and four humans. So you're praying that that's going to happen. And then all of a sudden you're on a freeway at 6 p.m. on a Friday night trying to get across town to your hotel after a 19-hour flight with a six-year-old. So I think we took a little bit to get over all that. And then Jackie got like chronically ill. And if we'd known that we were, we actually arrived like a day after the first known case of coronavirus in the US. But it, we didn't know that at the time. There was no talk of it, it's just sort of backdated. But had we known, it would have been a bit uh, an added stress. So all that, all that lead up and stress on the actual move probably dominated the spectrum for the first sort of six weeks and then a couple of weeks of normalcy. We had one amazing night out with the Paharich duo um, and then all of a sudden we're here and it, how much would we love to be in that restaurant grind once you've, it's taken away from you but at the same time we weren't expecting it, you know. What is the status of the project? Like you, 
it will it move forward and 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 how is the LA scene like what what's been the the impact on the restaurant scene there yeah well you think now that whenever people have said that a decision by government or a situation the industry's found itself in was catastrophic it seems like we might have been using that word a bit early because i think this is this is going to be catastrophic on a real big scale over the coming year. And I think that it's hard to get your head around that that's how long we're talking about, but that is how long we're talking about. Um, and for a lot of places, like hanging on for a year on scraps that you can get through takeaway and low alcohol sales is not going to be an option, you know. So I think it, currently we're not seeing much and because – you know, I, I drive to work and then come back to home. I'm not out and about and I'm not checking in on mates because we're staying home so that we can help, you know, help beat it. So it's it's a little bit hard to have your finger on that pulse as to how it's actually going now, but you hear, you hear the struggles and the uncertainty and you hear such differing opinions and, and no news outlet has formed a strong enough opinion where they can predict what's going to happen and no tier of government is is coming out with anything strong and forthright about what's going to happen. So you end up sort of piecing the, the story together yourself in a way. And, you know, just having worked in restaurants for 20 years, you know that you can't just partially shut up shop for a year and everything be okay. So I think we're going to see massive. It's going to be a pretty big shock to the city, and not just our industry, but the whole kit and caboodle. Now I know, as far as America's concerned, LA hasn't been impacted as much as, say, New York. Um, but what what is it like living over there uh, and experiencing the the decisions of the government that's there, and um, and obviously having friends and family back home in Australia, and you'd be aware of. Um, what the impact has been here, and the, the status of where we are in Australia. You know, what's it, what's it feel like living there? You know, it's funny when when you make the decision. Like, I'm not someone that has spent my life longing to move here, um, and it's something that the, like there was definite reticence in our family about moving here because from an outside country, you do look at America, and you often pick up the negatives a lot stronger than you pick up the positives. So us having that bit of time to actually get here and go, oh, I actually quite like this place and I, I like a lot of the attitude and the people are really nice and friendly and I, I don't see a lot of the negatives that we used to see. And, that, you know, being frank, a lot of that comes down to being a middle-class white male which you can't ignore, but at the same time, that's what eyeballs I look out of. Um, I, to be honest, like I, I don't see much room for complaint as to how they've handled it. They've been, when they've made decisions, they've been swift and really clear, like it's really black and white, school's closed, here's what's happening. If you can't afford to buy food for your kids, then you rock up to a school and you get food. I've been um, pretty impressed 
overall, to be honest. We're, we're now in a bit of a quagmire where we're thirsty for information, but I think that probably comes from getting, you know, getting a bit jittery and bored with the whole process as opposed to them actually being at a stage where information would be expected. Like Tuesday, they had the most confirmed cases of the whole outbreak in LA County, 2,500. So, you know, if you if you look at the numbers and you look at some of these news resources that are saying things like that, you'd be hard-pressed to expect much rosy information from government. Um, and like I said, you know, our experience where we are and our day-to-day life is, you know, not terrible. I'd hate to complain knowing what's going on with other people around the world. Um, so, yeah, with, uh, in a way we're trying to stay positive and active and awaiting information about how reopening can, can work and what we can do to make the whole process work to the best of its ability, you know. But overall, what we're experiencing is, is all good. After the break, Monty Kaludrovic tells us about his new restaurant in LA and what the future holds for the hospitality sector. We can space tables in outdoor areas and cafes, but how do you operate a bustling bar while the DJ is just going off his head under the restrictions that we're expecting? This episode of the Deep in the Weeds podcast is brought to you by Blood and Courage Shiraz from St. John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley. Blood is, you know, is classically just is Shiraz. Being the, the primary variety of, of the Barossa and, and certainly of the St. John's brand, you know, that, that blood, that Shiraz, it, it runs in our veins. It's a, it's a part of every Barossan's uh, daily life. I, you know, I clean my teeth with it, I shower in it. You know, it, it's just part of everything that we do and it, it's synonymous with the Barossa Valley. So it, it really is the core part of that. And the, and the courage, you know, just comes along with it. It's, it's the courage to go out and uh, grow grapes in a, you know, in an environment when, you know, that's forever changing. It takes so much courage to go out and do uh, grape growing. It's, it's a very difficult process. It's, it's long hours. It's even middle of winter, they're out pruning their vines. In the middle of summer, it's, you know, 35, 40 degrees and they're out harvesting their grapes. So I guess that's the real meaning behind blood and courage, you know. That's James Leanett, winemaker at St. John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley, who also told us what makes their blood and courage Shiraz so special. With Blood and Courage being our, I guess, our, our main wine, really trying to deliver a, a really exceptional Shiraz, uh, also at value. We don't use a lot of new oak on this wine because I don't like wines to taste like oak. I like wines to taste like grapes that they were made from. It's a really nice wine. Blood and Courage Shiraz from St. John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley. What drew you to move to LA and do this project? You know, can you tell us a story, sort of how you came to be setting up this new restaurant in LA? Yeah, um, it's a funny one, you know. Like I think I, I put a, a lot of thought into it, and I was probably thinking about it even when I wasn't thinking about it back in Australia. Um, like I moved to London when I was twenty 
with a good friend, Soren Lascelles, who's now over in Hong Kong. And I think I had about 3,000 Aussie dollars with me and not a lot of experience. And it was, it, it's sort of a massive adventure and it's a huge period of growth, traveling and taking you out side of your safety net and I really loved it I did three and a half years there and then I came back and it was a big slog at Bacasse that was six years of hard work and lots of reward but lots of sacrifice Um, and you know when you're doing that six years goes past pretty fast and then we started a family and bought a property and sort of locked in for that stage and all of a sudden, you're in another six-year tenure at another amazing restaurant. And then you do the maths and you're halfway through your second decade without having that previous adventure um, replicated. And if it comes down to that point where you're like, would I like to do it? You ask yourself and you go, okay, I would like to do it. What's stopping you? Well, it's hard and there's so many unknowns and it might not work and what's that going to feel like and, you know, that all those things which are realities are the things that stop you doing it. Um, and then trying to mitigate those things shows you that it could just as easily be the opposite of all those things that could be great and that, would be amazing for the kids to experience it at this stage of their life and it could be amazing for our careers and it could be amazing for our growth and it could be fun. comes to that point where you have to face like, yes, it's going to be hard, but I don't want to pass up the opportunity to get all those amazing things. Um, and that was the big one, you know, like going through that and then I hadn't fully gone through that process when I asked Jackie because I knew that there was no point if she wasn't comfortable attacking it and we're not going to do a long-distance family raise of five and six or six and seven-year-olds. So, (laughs) you know, it's going to put the kibosh on it. And I asked her and she just straight away said, yeah, if you you want, pretty much. (laughs) Wow. Um. And that's it. Like it, that 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 period of decision making and those discussions are the big ones, you know. Because good projects are all around the world, including Australia. Australia's got incredible operators and and people and industry. You would never leave just because the industry couldn't give you what you wanted. It's more about that chasing that adventure and and. You know, you only live once and do I, would I do it when I'm 50? Probably not. So it's probably time to act on it now. Why, why did you get into hospitality? And and do you remember the first day being a chef? Well, I moved out of home when I was 15 and moved to Sydney when I was 16. But I still wanted to do my HSC because I was – intending to go to university and I had a scholarship. I didn't know to do what, probably a Bachelor of Arts. Um, that was the plan. And hospitality offered that thing that it offers so many where I could 
go and supplement my my uh, student allowance with some money so I could live. Uh, and I started out in the front of house and I was pretty rubbish. I was, I was too chatty with customers and um, not that sleek through the table plan. Um, I was that guy behind the counter who had the cream gun explode in his face trying to make a bloody milkshake. And the, the chef did a no-show um, in this cafe in Newtown. So it was like, uh, okay, well, I can do what he did. It was just like big breakfast and that was it. I, you know, now that I've never actually been, I've been asked to tell the story and I've asked what got me into it and I've asked how I ended up there, but I, I haven't been asked if I remember my first day and I don't actually know if I do. I remember the lead up. I don't really remember being in the kitchen. It's a funny one. And then from there I just got addicted to the camaraderie and the and that, that culture that that kitchens have. Um, we used to serve food to the Irish pub two doors down and it used to get walked out in the street and delivered into the pub. So there was a good relationship with them. So I don't want to uh, name names, but as a 16-year-old, I had good access to Kilkenny's and Guinness. Um, and then I still intended, I think, to pursue the university train. But I sort of got hooked in, you know, I started off in a pretty standard cafe operation in Australia, which is a high-level cafe globally, you know, like Australians do cafe as well. But I sort of got into, I had this thirst to be better and get better and it was the first time I'd tasted that outside of the sporting arena and I knew that I didn't have the commitment to pursue sport even though I did a lot of sport as a kid. I, I didn't want to spend my whole day training. Um, and that, you know, there's something to be said for that feeling and and chasing it where you're, I want to get better. Where can, who can I go learn from? Where can I go? What? How am I going to make this work with my life? How am I going to achieve what I want to achieve? Because now it's up to me. There's no rule book or there's no guidelines as to what to do. You've got to make it happen. And it, I sort of really loved that. It was up to me. And you'd go to places that were better and you'd tell them that you could do things that you didn't know you could and then they'd give you a shot and it was D-Day and you had to do what you said you could do or more if it was going to continue. So that's pretty much what I did and I got hooked on it. You've, you've been a chef that um, focuses on quality produce and tries to champion it and put it on a pedestal and do as little as you can to it but just um, let it show its true characters. And this new project sort of is – you know, your goal is to shine a light on some Australian produce. You know, have you have you seen any sort of the of the effect on producers in this pro, in this crisis at all? Yeah, and the, the effect on like the actual coal face of the hospitality industry has it's inherited some there's there's romance and excitement around it from the public that hasn't filtered through in the same way to producers, but everything that's happening is affecting them as disastrously as everyone else. Like their customers are still there, but they just can't 
by anything. So, like, it's, it's probably one of the hardest things, you know, because you can furlough staff, but you can't furlough broadbands that need picking, and you can't furlough seasons. You know, those things are set in stone, and those guys operate really intricate systems. And, like, I just don't see like what they can do better than just scraping by and building boxes and, you know, doing their best. But it's a challenge. And, you know, it's one of the most heartbreaking things for us in our position is that we haven't had the chance to firm up a lot of the really young relationships that we've forged here. Like, And so I've, I'm, I've, I've never felt so disconnected from my network of producers than I do currently. You know, we've taken ourselves away from Australia. And one of the reasons that we love the idea of this adventure is to go through that process again. Like I loved, I looked back on the years of, of meeting farmers and building relationships and carrying that through to the restaurants. And you can't replace those those formative years. You can't stay in the same pond and get that same thing happening again. You've got to get yourself out of the pond. It was one of the most exciting things about coming over here is that we've got to do all that again and we've got to test ourselves that we do care enough about it to do it again and we need to invest time in these people and these relationships. And we just haven't had a chance to do it. And now, you know, I, I know that the few that I know, they're still trading, but just real skeleton crew, like just they're trying to mitigate loss as opposed to grow. It's a bit of a shocker. What do you think is so special about restaurants and, you know, what, what do you hope to bring to LA? Um, I'm sort of just excited to bring add my perspective on food and dining into what is already an amazing pool, you know. Like I grew up with my dad being an artist and I was always my probably my first real understanding of restaurant, cafe, wine bar culture is him talking about what it means for an art movement to exist and that it's not about a dictated time or about um, artists presenting in galleries, about artists meeting up. And most of that type of stuff, especially with the art that my dad was into, happened in cafes, restaurants, wine bars, and people meeting and those moments in time where the venue played a massive part in what, what, why those guys were there and what they did and who they met and what their inspiration was. And you sort of, I've never found anything that comes close to recreating those moments for people. And when you, when you look at a city like Los Angeles and everything it does in the, all of the spectrums from, you know, technology through to the arts, like what better place to come and toss your rod? to be a part of all of what happens, you know, not just in our industry, but the people that come in and doing amazing things. And 
It's a, it's a great part of what we do to have the privilege to be a part of that. But uh, in saying that, like I said, it's not sort of what we why we're here. Um, it definitely is exciting and fun, but I've been proud to cook in Australia for my whole life and hope to do it again another day, you know, like Australia's an epic place to live and work. Um, so I think we just do what we do. We come here and we do what we do and hope that people enjoy it and that we enjoy it and that everyone has a good time. Now, you said a little bit earlier that you're expecting sort of a four- to five-month period to build the restaurant before opening. You know, what's the time frame now? Obviously, there's some uncertainties about restaurants, but has have you had those conversations? Yeah. Well, the, the construction industry is, as long as they can show that they can operate safely, um, the construction industry is still operational and we're dealing with a really respected and professional building outfit um, and, you know, they, they know exactly how the city works and they know all the departments, they know all the points they've got to hit. So I think the big one is just all the players coming to grow coming to grips with their individual situations so that they can fulfil their part in it. The builders can can do everything they need to in the original timeline as long as they can get their sign-offs and their checks. You know, they can't cover certain walls until pipework's been checked and they can't if they can't cover those walls then they can't do this. And so at the moment we're anticipating a two to three months extension on opening which sort of means we miss the end of summer and we're probably more looking at October for an opening but it's a little you know it is hard to at this stage it's hard to forecast that you know a little earlier you were saying about you know the next year for restaurants and how difficult it'll be to try and hang on for that sort of period uh, especially with takeaway models and uh, veg boxes and whatever they're trying to do to adapt and survive what do you think the way forward is for restaurants on the other side of the pandemic? Yeah, well, we, we um, as, as a team now, we have a Zoom meeting on Mondays um, where we all bring to the table where we're at now thinking around all this stuff and most of it is relative to our group and our businesses. Um, and where where I'm sort of at is that in the same way that every F&B operation differs, the way that each F&B operator needs to adjust is going to be different. Um, and I genuinely think for ones that can make it and get through, I think it could end up being quite fruitful as long as they do make the right decisions and they they don't come in with too heavily cemented ideas on how they want it to look, then there needs to be a little bit of flex while everyone gets used to it. That's customers as well. And operators need to know that customers are going to need a bit of flex time and a bit of understanding time. 
but I really don't think there's a there's a uh, you know one thing that can fix everyone's future. I think that people really do need to spend some time outside of their own creative bubble and operational bubble and and try and think a bit laterally about how they can stick to their guns but also ride through a really rough time where flexibility and being ready to make decisions and execute them fast is going to be really key. And, you know, like I said before, there's no resource that has this mapped out, you know, like we're one part of a big puzzle over here. And I think that most of the reading I'm doing is articles, which is other chefs and other operators being asked the same question and trying to, trying to formulate a, a really broad depth and understanding of the situation so that we can make our decisions that are going to work for us. The big one is bars and and nightclubs. You know, bars operate in restaurants as well, and we've got businesses that have a great bar vibe once the restaurant closes. Um, and that's going to be the biggest challenge because everything that is good about a bar is the things that are in jeopardy. You know, we can pull a few tables out of restaurants and. We can space tables in outdoor areas in cafes, but how do you operate a bustling bar while the DJ is just going off his head under the restrictions that we're expecting? So my answer is that I don't know, but that everyone needs to work hard at it. Well, mate, when you uh, you get the green light, and the doors open on this new project and it sounds epic with, with that many employees. Um, what's it going to feel like? Oh, you know, like it's just going to be fucking incredible. It's the most, in, it's the most incredible project to jump into, whether it was in LA or Australia, but the fact that it's in Hollywood and it's so rich with 50 years of, history with amazing recording artists and all the tales and even the neighbourhood is like, you know, it's, it smells like that gritty neighbourhood that you know is on the way up and is coming back to some glory. It's not there yet though. Like, and so it's, it's super fun. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah, it's going to be good. It's making me, it reminds me of just being in restaurants and restaurants that I love and um, I can't wait to get back to that, and I can't wait to see what you deliver in LA. And um, mate, really appreciate you. I know it's up. I know you're up late over there, and um, it was awesome to chat. Oh, if only this was late for me, Huck. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've still, I've still got another episode of Columbo in me before I get to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. You haven't lost your hospital hours, so you'll be fine opening a new restaurant. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's good to chat, and um, and congratulations on a great on a great podcast. Well done, and shout out to Rob as well in the background. Yep, he likes to stay quiet, but he's a he's pretty amazing. Hey, Monty, um, keep in touch and stay safe, and um, we'll talk to you soon. We'll do. Thanks a lot. See you later. 
This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Stay safe, isolate and be well.